0: Be damned if the same politicians who refuse to act then are going to try to come back today. The real
1: content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving
2: for. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background
1: and experience. <laughs> Let me say this. Key phrase so that I remember what my mood is. She's a woman. Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker. I'm here with my co pilot, Caitlin, and it's time for She's a Woman. It's a podcast for every human being who looks in the mirror and says, She's a woman and for the people who love them. Every week, we talk to incredible women of all kinds from all walks of life and invite them to share their incredible stories with you, our amazing listeners. And that's exactly what we're going to do today, Caitlin. How are you doing?
0: I'm okay. We're recording this at like midnight, essentially.
1: Essentially, it's 8.24 p.m. We haven't been up this late in months.
0: Right, exactly. Literally after we're done, I'm probably gonna go right to bed.
1: Oh, I, if I didn't have to play bingo right after this via Zoom, I would be completely asleep. I may be asleep for this bingo Zoom. Who knows?
0: (laughs) And you said you would never be a bingo queen.
1: And I said I would never be a bingo queen. Here we are 2021. Anything is possible. We have a female vice president and cracker is playing bingo, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, speaking of 2021, I have a question for you that I have been thinking about, and it's a deep one. Okay. Am I still a comedian? here's what I mean. (laughs) The world has changed so much and times have become so difficult. I don't think anything is funny anymore. And I used to have this notebook where I would store all my jokes because I used to have jokes just pouring out of my brain. Now that notebook is like, dusty and I find myself thinking about like serious stuff. And I wonder, like, am I still a comedian? Am I a comedian in hibernation? What do you think is going on?
0: I think you're still a comedian because it's like when a writer has writer's block and doesn't release a book for 10 years. Right. Don't, aren't they still a writer. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, you're right.
0: Or like if an actor takes it, like if, if you're like, whatever happened to so-and-so actor? I haven't seen them in a movie in a while, but you still like think of them as an actor or an actress, Yes. right? So I feel like then you would still be a comedian if that's how we think of it.
1: What was our example that I was always talking to you about? The guy from Children of Men.
0: The guy that we're always talking about. And I'm like, I've never seen one of his movies.
1: Clive Owen.
0: That's right. <laughs>
1: It's like Clive Owen. He was in every single movie, every five minutes, and then suddenly he wasn't anymore. But hey, he's still an actor because I saw him on like a cologne ad. So, you know?
0: Right? I mean, I guess in theory, there are retired actors, but I don't think you're a retired comedian yet.
1: You're taking a hiatus or something. Now that you bring it up, I think about Annie Leibovitz, who everyone is obsessed Mm -hmm. with right now, who's had writer's block for like 20 years or something like that. What did you just say?
0: What would you just call her?
1: Annie Leibovitz?
0: Annie Leibovitz?
1: Fran Leibovitz. Oh my God.
0: (laughs) I was like, am I wrong? You said it with such confidence. I was like, maybe I'm in
1: the wrong <laughs> I'm thinking about the photographer.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, so
1: I've been thinking about Fran Lebowitz, who everyone is obsessed with right now, <laughs> who hasn't written a book in like 20, 30, 40 years or something like that. And, uh, you know, she's a speaker now. And I feel like... I have done the exact opposite thing because I write every day and I just don't speak anymore. So maybe I'm like, I'm Man Leibovitz. That's what I am.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, she has like a number one Netflix special. So it worked out for her. So it's going to work out for you. That's that's our positive thinking of the day. (laughs) Maybe I'm
1: going to have a number one audible.com book. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, right. Exactly.
1: Thank you. See, this is why... I wanted to talk to you about it because you always have such a good perspective.
0: Well, I don't know if always.
1: You always talk me (laughs) down off a ledge. And I don't know, I've just been thinking you have been so busy lately and Mm -hmm. going through so many changes and everything. And I just realized that like I literally... We're doing this by Zoom today. I hate it. I don't know how to function in my uh, career without you. So I just want to make this episode an appreciation episode for our resident woman, uh, Caitlin Gretem. (laughs) Thank you for being here for me. Yeah, you're welcome. I feel like you don't get appreciated enough.
0: It's always flattering. I mean, maybe it sounds bad. I'm like, it's always flattering to see how you fall apart when I'm away. I'm like, what a mess. She's a mess without me.
1: (laughs) Anyway, enough about all of that. Caitlin. I want to dive right into our serious groundbreaking interview. But first, I have a little treat for you. Every week, we do a little segment called Here's the Good News, where we share positive stories torn from the headlines. (laughs) The idea is that they'll bring you, our listeners, a little hope during these difficult times. And this week, our news is all about very small triumphs. Okay, I think you're going to like this one.
0: <clears throat> okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, su- I'm going to be surprised. I don't know what it is.
1: We're going to do like a crime junkies moment where I send you a picture, too. Oh,
0: okay. Wow. So have your
1: phone ready.
0: I know! It's like,
1: <laughs> I know. Here's the good news. Scientists have discovered that the Pinatubo mouse, a Filipino oh. rodent, is not extinct, <gasps> despite the fact that her home was literally blown to smithereens. Oh my God. According to the New York Times, this mouse lives only one place on earth, a mountain called Mount Pinatubo. And in 1991, that mountain erupted into a violent volcano blowing a one and a half mile hole in the face of the earth. So everyone thought that the mouse who lived on that mountain was toast for sure. But weirdly, she's actually thriving. Scientists have been shocked to find that this kind of mouse is now the most abundant mammal on the mountain or what's left of it. So have a look at this little gal.
0: (laughs) So cute. It's got some scary looking back legs
1: i know i was thinking that like when the mountain erupted in 1991 that's how the mouse ran away it we-
0: got away yeah
1: yeah the long back legs
0: oh my gosh look at those beady eyes little ears <laughs> i know oh he's so cute we will
1: share a rodent story if it's the last thing we do I know. So this mouse's dramatic saga tells us one thing. First of all, you should never underestimate rodents.
0: They are resistant.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Anyone who's ever seen a New York City rat knows that that's the case.
0: Oh, yes.
1: (laughs) And that's a direct quote from Christine Wilkinson, a doctoral student researching conservation biology and human wildlife conflict at the University of California, Berkeley.
0: Wait, she said that about rodents in New York City? (laughs) Yeah she did. Wow. Well, she's, she knows.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But it also tells us another thing the animals on this planet are not doomed necessarily. They are natural born survivors. It's not time for us to throw up our hands and say, well, I guess life on earth is toast. Mm -hmm. It's time for us to throw our environmental conservation efforts into high gear, because who knows how many creatures might just bounce back if we make the planet a better place for them, you know?
0: Yeah. And a good lesson for us humans, you know, who are like, oh, my God, we're in lockdown with our cable and running water. Like, you know what I mean? I mean, I've definitely been guilty of that, too. Let's not get crazy. But it's a good lesson, you know, (laughs) if these rodents can survive.
1: Yeah, I just thought that this was a a really nice story. And because it's a little tiny mouse, it's a great lead-in to our interview. But first, let's take a little break. Okay, we're back Now, before we continue, let me say this. If you enjoy your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much. We're going to read some of our favorite reviews at the end of the show. But now it's time for today's interview. And Caitlin, you know, I'm very excited for this one.
0: Oh, I know, it's your favorite thing. It combines (laughs) multiple aspects of your favorite things.
1: So some of you listeners may already know this, but I've recently become obsessed with making miniatures. I spent a lot of 2020 making a little miniature model village out of cereal boxes and popsicle sticks, (laughs) complete with lights and little people. It sounds crazy. (laughs) Obviously that led me into a YouTube frenzy where I was looking at people who do this stuff professionally. And that's how I ran into this amazing duo. Lori Nix and Kathleen Gerber are amazing miniature artists who have worked together for over 20 years. Their incredible creations range from miniature cities to miniatures of their own living room, and they capture these little dioramas with beautiful, fine art photography. I recommend that you go to our podcast Instagram, Caitlin.
0: (laughs) Yep, that's right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She's a woman podcast, all one word, and have a look at their work. You'll just sit there and wonder, wow, how did they do it? Their work has gained wide acclaim in the U.S. and Europe and Nick's is a 2014 Guggenheim Fellow in photography. The duo has illustrated stories for numerous magazines, including The New Yorker and The New York Times Magazine, which we both get, Caitlin. That's right. As well as numerous book covers, including work by Dave Eggers and many more. So without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome, how are you two feeling today? Hello. 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 <laughs> <laughs> That's like quite the introduction. I feel like it's you sound like you've done a lot and you have.
2: Well, you know, everything looks good on paper.
1: <laughs> right.
2: We should be doing more.
1: I feel the same way. I think as soon as you've done something and it's in the past, you're always like, wait, now that that's over, am I anything? Or do I have to be doing something new in order to be special? Do you know what I mean?
2: Oh, yeah. We always say we get a little bit of amnesia and we forget how much goes into to what we just did. And, yeah. you know, all the months or whatever. And we're like, yeah, let's do that again. I was like, oh, wait, that was seven months. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we do it.
1: What I don't understand for our listeners, the projects that we're talking about, these dioramas, these miniatures, a lot of them take seven months or more to complete. How do you keep at it with like no rewards or attention or applause from the outside world? You have to work essentially in the dark with no one urging you on. Do you know what I mean?
2: Oh, that's interesting.
3: Well, well, first, when we're we're making these dioramas, we don't share them with too much of the outside world because I don't want to be dissuaded in the middle of the creating process.
2: Yeah, and I think it helps that there's uh, many layers. I think it helps that there's two of us. Yes. So I can be excited what she's working on. She likes what I'm doing. And we can sort of maintain some excitement that way it's I think our personality is just you know we've chosen to be people who work alone in a basement and that's what (laughs) makes us happy so you know it's it's we're just kind of doing what we're meant to do question mark
1: yeah my mother is a painter and she says that one of the challenges for her is that after each project, there's kind of a postpartum depression where you're kind of like, well, that's over. What's next? Do you guys experience that or do you help each other through that as well?
2: No, we self-wallow a little. <laughs> and okay. and less so after individual pieces, but moreover after shows.
3: Yes. Cause it usually takes us about, three to four years to create enough work for a gallery exhibition. Meaning seven or eight pieces. Yeah. Wow. And then it it almost seems like it takes us a year after the show is completed before we're ready to jump back into it again.
2: Yeah, I think we're working on like three years now (laughs) since the last one. Right. um, While things percolate.
1: Now that we're talking about your work process, have you been impacted by the pandemic or since you're in your bunker, does it not affect you as much?
2: Well, I moved my Brooklyn bunker to the Cincinnati bunker. So yeah. I would say, yes, it definitely affected. Yeah. Because <laughs> we had been working in two different cities for a bit. Beyond that major change, no. It's it's always been basically us working alone. And then that's kind of what we do now.
3: Unfortunately, we're not taking advantage of this COVID lockdown the way that some other artists seem to be really prolific at this moment. We don't seem
2: to be as prolific. To We're be. busy. We have a parallel life doing commercial work. So that I, seems to be in the forefront.
1: I thought that this would be the year that I wrote my book, like 2020 <laughs> would be the year. And I'm like, I'm going to be so prolific. But what I found out is when I don't have anything to do, I don't do anything. Let's rewind a little bit. As I always say, part of this podcast is telling the stories of incredible women from the very beginning. I wonder if you could each tell me the first time you knew you were obsessed with miniature and diorama.
2: Lori will go first. Oh, oh, it was when
3: I was much younger. I'd say like eight or nine years old my friends, the Stutterheims, who had beaucoup amounts of money, had the most amazing dollhouse in their basement. And I really think it was their mother wanting to just buy all these miniatures and have the dollhouse, but supposedly it was for her daughters. Right. And I just love playing (laughs) with that. The little gumball machine, these little books. It was just, you know, amazing. And I didn't have that at my home. Which is fine because it was like more exotic if I get to go to the Stutterheim's house to play.
1: Right.
2: I don't think I had a big like childhood miniature experience. Uh, I had an older brother who always had trains, but he just like working with the train, not doing the layout so much. Right. It really wasn't until we got to be friends later on and I was bored and Lori was busy and I asked if I could help. And she says, Sure. You know, I like doing paint finishes and stuff like that, but just happened to be that I had an affinity for this for the small.
1: I remember for me, it was also a dollhouse that got me into it. My grandfather did woodwork on the side. And he made this elaborate dollhouse with a removable roof. It had lights and tiny furniture and tiny kitchenware. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, here's this little world where stories can unfold and just being obsessed with it, which is kind of why I'm obsessed with what you do a lot, because (laughs) it's all about little stories unfolding. So you mentioned you two coming together. And I wanted to know, can you tell me what brought you together for the first time? New
2: York City. We were both living in Columbus, Ohio. Lori just got a grant, wanted to get out and wanted a friend. And I was burned out of my job. And so came along and we shared an apartment in in Brooklyn, And she was continuing to do her her fine art, which was like tabletop, small scale stuff. And yeah, I just, I wanted in she wanted in and I knew that she had the better talent you know it was my
3: master plan to (laughs) slowly reel her into my to my universe and uh it worked very devious (laughs) and here she still is and here I am
1: (laughs) what was the first project that you did as a team
3: oh yes it was it was one of the first major photo series that we were working on it was called accidentally kansas which is kind of mm-hmm. based on my childhood experiences of growing up in rural Western Kansas. I was doing a scene of a, of a church tent revival. Mm-hmm. And these, these people are inside the tent, you know, singing to, singing to Jesus, singing, I saw the light and I needed, I needed some lightning to strike the, t- the tent. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Cause they were going to see the light one way or the other. <laughs> and uh, Kathleen made the most amazing lightning bolt for me. Just from there, it just, like, snowballed.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny that your first project together was about kind of a destructive force because a lot of the projects you do together or have done together are about spaces that are ruined or falling apart. They look like they're at the end of the world. What do you think gives you this fascination for destroyed or dying or ruined places?
3: I think it's growing up in rural western Kansas. It's a landscape full of barns that are falling down, abandoned houses, some new construction going up. But it's really just wide open spaces and things just atrophying.
2: Yeah, I don't have quite the same fascination with the end of the world that Lori does. I find it a little creepy to think about. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd love being able to do the distressed finishes and, you know, Lori will build the structures and I'll kind of start taking them apart and destroying them that way. So that's what I Yeah,
1: like. You did a series together that was all about the end of the world. And at the very end, you made an image of your own studio or a diorama of your own <laughs> studio that was abandoned and the artists were gone. Kathleen, I think you're saying that's a little bit creepy.
2: I get a little overwhelmed if I really. Well, first thing, that's sort of a, that was a cleaned up version of what our apartment looked like. Yeah, that was actually <laughs> cleaner than what our apartment definitely was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little hard to imagine, a little a little little sad to recognize. But you know, I think I think we really enjoyed it because just it was a good chance to step back a little bit and despite how it how it looked, kind of look at things. And so there was lots of sort of chuckling and laughter as we pulled stuff off of the shelf and sort of went over things that we had acquired over the years.
1: I mean, you made each individual CD that you own to put on the shelf, which is so incredible. For everyone that hasn't seen this project, it's a miniature of their studio and the CDs that they made are smaller than a thumbnail, like a human Mm -hmm. thumbnail, I would say. And just each individual one has the cover of the actual CD on their shelf, so. <laughs>
3: and there's a couple of embarrassing CDs in there. I'm like a uh, a closet Enya fan. So I had like my Enya CD
2: <laughs> tucked away.
1: Now don't be embarrassed. There's nothing embarrassing about Enya. I have my Enya collection as well. <laughs>
2: very soothing.
1: It's good. You kind of built this career together where you were for yourselves doing fine art photography and miniature making. And then commercially, you're doing miniature making for um, major corporations and magazines. And I kind of wanted to know for our young listeners, what was the path to creating a career in the arts, before we started recording, I was telling you, you know, you don't have to say that you had a vision for it all along. It's okay to be honest and say you stumbled into it. I want to know how you stumbled into the arts.
3: So I just started off small. I kept my expectations realistic. So I started applying for sh- regional art shows. There's a there's amazing nonprofit art spaces in small towns everywhere and in larger towns across the United States. And I started sending my work to these places in in hopes of getting, you know, either into a group show. And then uh, later on I would have solo shows. And that just kind of like, it's like it built the momentum. It was like a small snowball that just kept rolling downhill and getting bigger and bigger. So I do think there's certain steps a person can take to slowly building their career. Other people want to do it overnight. And I was more into the slow and steady
2: pace. Right. But what did you almost do? What do you mean?
3: What
2: What was your first career? You're talking what what
3: was my college? Yes. My college major was actually accounting.
1: (laughs) Shut up.
3: It lasted a semester. You know, it was like, I am not an accountant. I am not a numbers person. I, as soon as I knew that, which was about two weeks into my college career, I definitely, I I started taking art classes all over again. My father really wanted me to like to pursue some line of work that I could pay my rent on. And so it was either, he wanted me to either be an accountant or a pharmacist and I'm right. just not either of them. So when I switched my major from accounting to ceramics, uh, he went gray overnight.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what did he say?
3: Well, he says, okay, I hope you can support yourself. And that's about
2: all he said. My parents are right. always good about letting us choose our own paths. And I was almost an English major. Because I like to read and I don't know, I thought somehow that could be a career. <laughs> I don't think I understood careers. I just was going to go into what I liked and then I was very quickly able to change at the end to like studio art. Kind of like Laura, it's like my folks they didn't really say much. I think it was like, well, what are you going to do once you get your degree? And I think I said something flipped, like, well, I'll go apply at Kmart like everybody else does. Yeah. And then just kind of blindly, ignorantly, wonderfully just kept doing what felt right. And what, what interested me, I lucked into good, good schools and fell in with a good hardworking crowd. And I don't know, just kind of kept saying yes to whatever was coming up and trusting
3: the path to our success is that we each when we had those day jobs we still went into the arts we're still surrounding ourselves with other creative people because you can really just latch onto that creative energy and use it as inspiration to keep moving so my day job was working in a color photo lab as a large format color printer and Kathleen's job.
2: Yeah. Um, I worked at a uh, a small family business that sold gold leaf. So even though I was just like taking orders, orders over the phone, I was still working with a very creative clientele and would find out what they were doing, how they did stuff. And so I still sort of kept a little finger hold that way.
1: You know what my Day job was I was a grant writer. Before <gasps> I was a that's a good queen. one. <laughs> so, like, I was almost in accounting as well. I had been doing years and years of grant writing for museums, and I sat in a windowless office and just ran budgets and counted heads and wrote reports and pleaded with major corporations to give us money and. I did that during the day from 10 to 6 for the first five years of my drag career before I got any traction. So I was doing that during the day. And then at night, I would do my shows almost every night and then haul myself out of bed and do the day job. And the reason that I, with a little bit of eyeliner still on my eyes, by the way.
2: (laughs) Fantastic.
1: (laughs) The reason I wanted to say that is because I think that for some of our listeners, there is a sense that when you work in the arts, there's like a lightning bolt, like in your revival scene that comes down and hits you. And it's like, now's the time and sort of carries you away. But there's rarely that moment. There's often years and years where you're just sort of halfway between worlds. And like unsure that what you're doing is the right path and I just want everyone to know that you have permission to go nowhere for a long time before you feel discouraged if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, we each had full-time jobs for like 14 years yeah. and then yeah. transitioned to part-time job and then I would still take extra days off if we, you know, were really involved in something and then Finally, we just kind of got to the point where, you know, we need now or never. Right. We need to like try so that we won't be like, oh, I wish we had. I wish we had.
1: Yeah. Well, ultimately, what ultimately was the turning point for me was that I was so miserable in grant writing and I was sitting in a room with my biological mother and my drag mother. And I was like, I can't take it anymore. And they were both like, well, we don't want to see you miserable. Why don't you take the leap? and just do drag. And I think there is that moment and it comes out of you. It doesn't come out of the universe. No finger comes out of the cloud and points down at you. You just have to say, okay, I'm making this my moment and I'm going to make the leap. And that's how it all started. Were you scared at first as you were like, let go of those part-time jobs or did you just realize it was time and you just... Pushed forward.
2: Again, I think I'd reached the burnout stage at my job. And, you know, I had a long talk with my boss, and he was very supportive about it. It was getting to the point where I'd have to give myself a big pep talk every morning to go do a perfectly good, great paying, nice job. But I, right. But it was torture. But I could work 12, 15 hours a day on the weekend and be totally cool. Right. So just starting to notice what was making me happy was a
1: huge thing. It's amazing how much work you can put into something you love and not even notice. Yeah. And then if it's something you don't want to do, like laundry, for example, <laughs> it's like you need you need a cattle prod and like a cheerleading team and all of that.
3: <laughs> and you're always watching your watch, looking at your watch, like how much time has passed? How much longer do I have to do this? Yeah. And
1: no time has passed. That's always so it right? is. No time. <laughs> well, speaking about the uh, challenges of work, one of the fascinating things about y'all for me is the idea of collaboration. And have you had times where you just want to hit each other over the head with a Nerf mallet? Like, Are there times when you drive each other absolutely nuts?
3: Oh yeah. I drive (laughs) Kathleen more nuts than she drives me. That's true. (laughs) Why is that? I think I get a little bit more hyper than she does, and I get this excited energy, and she's just not ready for it. And you know, I kind of have to wear her down in order her to see my to see my point of view.
1: Yeah.
3: Well, or she says, Yeah, yeah, I see it.
2: No, it's just I think part of it's just personality differences. Yeah, I'm probably m- more even. Mm-hmm. And then Lori's highs are higher, which is great. The lows can be a little bit a little bit lower. But by and large, you know, we sort of work it out. We know it's we know it's temporary. Every now and then it's like, I'm just gonna go to the hardware store. And just, right. just have to leave for a bit. Yeah. And if she tells me
3: that she needs like some time to herself, that's great. I get all excited because she's actually just
2: being honest and I'll
3: remove myself from the room.
1: So is that the secret to a good collaboration? Honesty?
2: Oh, God, yes. Yeah. yeah and I think we both talked about it at times. It's like we both want this to work kind of mm-hmm. more than anything. So it's like whatever that needs to look like at that at that moment. I'm trying to be less controlling. Mm. Which is interesting.
1: So I'm so curious about how a project works for you now. So for example, let's talk about the cover you did for the New York Times magazine, which is a house being ripped out of the ground by a giant hand, (laughs) which I'm just in love with, by the way. How does a project like that come about?
3: They definitely reached out to us. And then they sent us the article that we were going to do the illustration for. And then Kathy and I just start talking it out about how, like, how can we represent this? What's a good approach?
2: The magazine will weigh in and
3: tell us, you know, what they're kind of looking for.
2: Yeah, the different jobs, sometimes they have a very definite idea. And then sometimes they really want more of a collaboration. I think on that one, we put out some ideas and they're like, oh, that's great. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, But we really will kind of want this. And it's like, (laughs) okay. Which is a bit of a relief at times to just be the literal hired hands executing someone's vision. It's like, great. You need more dirt? Got it. Yeah. you know, Right. So, you know, sketches back and forth and phone calls and yeah, it's a little different, but that's basically it. We sort of counter whatever their initial idea is. And then whatever level of involvement they have, and then just a lot of iPhone pictures back and <laughs> forth.
1: Right. So I want to know from each of you do you have a project that you look back on as just a nightmare? Cause it seemed like everything was going wrong.
2: Yeah. It's usually because I'm I'm overthinking something. We did something for Airwick mm. and I don't know. At one point they wanted to light the little figures on fire and I was like freaking out I'm like you can't do that it's I don't know I was worrying about stuff I didn't have to worry about and they're like whatever
1: can you talk to me about overthinking because I am known as a drag queen as an overthinker and I wonder if you have a process for getting out of it or if you need your teammate to help you what is that like
3: oh god Kathleen overthinks (laughs) everything (laughs) (laughs) but this also means that she's a good planner where Mm. I like will jump (laughs) in and make mistakes, she'll overthink it to death before she'll start. And sometimes I want to pull my hair out because I just want to slap her and say, we need to get moving on this. Stop thinking so much. Yeah. She's very patient with me. I appreciate that. It's a process for Kathleen. She just needs to think it out and then talk
2: it out. Yeah. And then execute. Yeah. There's some therapy happening. (laughs) Reading a lot of books. (laughs) A little Um, (laughs) self-help. Yeah. Trying to just, I don't even know what, some Buddhist stuff yeah and <laughs> just, you know, nothing really matters. I'm blowing it out of proportion. You know, everyone will survive.
3: But we each play a different part. I'm the big picture person and Kathleen worries about and sweats the details.
1: Yeah.
2: And you can get a lot of details packed into that big picture (laughs) if you work it just right.
1: I think it's so important for people to know that successful artists have moments of conflict and overthinking because I know for myself, at least when I'm creating, if I run into a roadblock, I'm like, well, I'm not a good artist. That's what it is. I just am not good at what I do (laughs) and I should just quit. And that's not what's happening. (laughs) What's happening is that you're having a hard day or you're having a hard moment. And a great artist is someone who knows how to work through that, not someone who never has challenges. Do you know what I mean?
3: Oh, oh, all too well. I think I like fail at something major on a weekly basis. Yeah. Yeah, And just have to like, start, have to think about it differently, try it again, start over. But, you know, at some point you just kind of get used to failing. So yeah. you just know what's going to happen.
2: Yeah. It's I'm finally, I think maybe starting to realize like, that's just part of my process is like, I'm going to have probably for sure two false starts on, on, on something. And I shouldn't freak out. There was this parachute I had to make. And oh my God, I was still sewing it like right until the client needed it. And it took like the third time and I finally just had to leave the room. I I can't watch it. I can't look at it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just too much.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So with that in mind, with all those challenges in mind, is there a project that you look back on and just think of it as a dream come true? Something that was like heaven to make from beginning to end and that just like, is very you. You think of it as your project. Hmm.
2: Lori's mouthing the words tic-tac to me. I don't know why she's not saying it out loud. I Love that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to see if you're going to agree with me. Well, I'm trying to think of everything. Yeah.
3: We did an ad campaign for tic-tac candy. Yes. So we had to make, we had to scale everything down to the size of a tic-tac, which was so fun. So challenging, but just, we just laughed the entire time.
1: Yeah.
2: Because it, you know, it needed like a little crash helmet. And then there was like a scene (laughs) with sharks. And so it needed like, goggles and a snorkel. And I mean, really all those problems are just really good challenges. And while the commercial work can take up a lot of time, it really pushes us to learn a lot of things in a faster amount of time. If all we did was fine art, I don't know that we would have technically learned so many things and kind of pushed our technique and refinement to the level that we
1: have. Yeah. One of the things that breaks my heart but I guess I understand it from my mother, <laughs> is that you throw away all the scenes that you make. Can you talk about that? Because I want to know why.
2: How large is your
1: apartment?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Do you store every outfit that you've ever had in there at one time? No. Every shoe, every wig, every no. stitch of clothing. No. Right. <laughs> it's just physically impossible. You, and you kind of have to make, way for the next thing. Yeah.
1: But you seem to love throwing them away in a way. Like it's is it like a cleansing moment for you?
2: Yeah. I mean, when we lived in in Brooklyn, so up until recently we've always worked where we lived. So we had a a, a nice apartment, well nice ish as you saw in the miniature. Yeah. But we lived where we were So if some of the, if a scene is lasting for 10 months, you have lived with that scene for 10 months. You've had lunch with it. Yeah. You've watched TV with it, everything. And at some point you're just so tired of it. Yeah, it is. It is fulfilled. It's little miniature purpose and there's just no room and you got to get it out. Right. You know, someone asked if, if we'd ever done like a Godzilla stomping moment or anything. I'm oh. like, how much would someone pay to do that to what scene. Oh,
1: right. <laughs> we,
3: yeah, we create a scene and let someone else come in and Godzilla. Oh, right.
1: absolutely. Yeah. Or their cat. So for our listeners, I want to know something from each of you. If you could go back in time and tell your young artist self uh, something that you wish you had known earlier, what would it be?
2: It'll be okay. <laughs> you will actually like not be destitute. <laughs> I'm knocking on wood, by the way. Right. Because, well, I was I was a late a late bloomer. I'd say I didn't really find my people until college. I would say. Yeah. So just didn't really like I had friends and everything, but no one who was really interested in art and everything. And just to have patience, you will find what your passion is, and you will find like-minded people who will nurture that in you. Lori's got one tear,
1: yeah. coming
2: down her face.
3: What
1: about you, Lori? <laughs>
3: I would like to go back in time. And even back when I was in college and just take more classes, uh, try even experiment with more mediums, get more comfortable with paint, with drawing, with, with sculpture instead of just concentrating on the two things that I concentrated on. I kind of wish, you know, we even had more skills to draw from. So I guess I would tell your listeners just, try a little bit of everything, but don't feel like you need to be an expert or the best in everything you try. Yeah. And I was, I was going to ask you this question when you decided to give up grant writing, did you give yourself a time? Like I'm only, I'm going to, I'm going to try this for two years. And if I don't make it, then I'm going to give up because that's one thing we never did. We never gave ourselves a timeline to get to where we are. Oh. And I think that can be, that can be a little hard for people to like, have a self-imposed deadline.
1: Yeah. You know, I just, I guess I'm like you, I didn't think about it at all. I just dove and I didn't think about what the consequences would be because it was just too scary. I would have frightened myself out of it. So yeah, like you, I just, no timeline or anything. I was just like, here we go. But I do remember when I first moved to New York out of college, I gave myself six months to find a job of some kind. And if I didn't have a job in six months, I was gonna move back to where I'm from, to Seattle. And luckily I was able to find a job, but I did have that idea. I told my mom I was only gonna be gone for six months and here we are. (laughs) coming up on the anniversary of 15 years later. And uh, yeah. (laughs) The internship of a lifetime, you know?
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wonder how different it feels for young people today, though, who maybe, I don't know, again, our our parents were, if not directly supportive, were indirectly supportive. Mm-hmm. And sounds like you had similar, but you know, you hear about the hel- helicopter parents and right. the people, people who've been scheduled forever and have to perform and I need tangible results. It's like, hopefully they'll give themselves permission to flounder a little if that's what's necessary.
1: And That's such a good point because we're coming up on a generation of people that are coming out of college. When they were young, they didn't have friends. They had play dates. They didn't have Mm, games. They had learning tools. And everything was for a purpose. And you're right. It was all scheduled and everything was supposed to result in a product and I do hope that this generation feels permission, especially in the middle of a global recession and a global pandemic to flail around for a long time and to not know what they're doing, and that's all part of the process. Just like it is part of the process in creating a drag look or a diorama, sometimes you're going to fumble, and that's part of life, and that's okay.
2: Yeah, well, that's often where you learn the most.
1: Well, I want to thank you guys so much for joining me today on this podcast. Again, for anyone who's listening, I know that we've been Lacks on our She's a Woman podcast Instagram. But this is this episode, we are sharing a lot of the work by these incredible artists so that you can look at it and get a sense of what exactly they do, because it really is beautiful.
2: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, that was a really great experience for me talking to those artists, Caitlin, because
0: you love miniatures. I love love miniatures.
1: (laughs) I love it so much. And these two artists in particular, they just have so much joy. They were laughing the entire time. And the fact that they're so different, but they are a team reminded me of you and me. Like we have so many things that like we don't get about each other but yeah. that's what makes us a great team, you know? It's
0: true, yeah, balance.
1: And also, like, we have a lot in common in ways, too, but we're just mm-hmm. in different moods at different times.
0: So when the other one can't carry on, one of us can, you know? <laughs> exactly.
1: It's very like Lord of the Rings, like you're hauling me up the mountain at sometimes. <laughs> oh, my, but... oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I do have to say this before we close out. If you like your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I can't repeat it enough times. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews right here at the end of the show. Caitlin, do you have a favorite review this week?
0: I do. This one is from Jessica. I love the power you're bringing to women. I can't wait to hear more stories and be inspired. Keep up the wonderful work. So much
1: love your way.
0: Yay! Thank you, Jessica.
1: And we need that. We need that love, Jessica. Yeah. Because as I always say in my cameos, which by the way I'm doing, (laughs) there's like just not enough love in the world right now. And the more we can put it out there, the better. So we're sending it right back to you, Jessica.
0: And it makes me happy that our uh, passion podcast is inspiring someone, you know?
1: And it is a passion podcast (laughs) because... (laughs) Yes,
0: it is. I was like, I hope she caught my... (laughs) You know, usage of those words.
1: (laughs) Because like we could have done like uh, whose outfit was worst podcast, (laughs) but we decided to do like talking to a clinician who works with women who have high risk pregnancies. You know what I mean? (laughs)
0: Like, (laughs) Only us. Yeah, only us.
1: (laughs) Enough about that. It's time for the credits, Caitlin, my favorite part of the show.
0: (laughs) It's your favorite.
1: (laughs) This podcast was produced by Caitlin Gretham, and then I did it. The cast includes me and also Caitlin, and it is distributed by the amazing Studio 71. So thank you for joining us today. Make sure to tune in next Monday for another exciting episode, which who knows what it's gonna be. And remember, if you ever feel down, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say, she's, she's a, a woman! woman! And I'll be with you. There, we we
0: did it. I hope that works. I can't tell what's delayed, or if, if there's anything it's delayed, I don't
1: know. Oh, and guess what? Even if it's delayed, I'm gonna make it sound like it came at the same time. <laughs> oh, oh, yes,
0: oh, yes. And you'll text me, <laughs> like annoyed to be like I've been working on this trucking thing blah blah blah. <laughs>